listening to a podcast from Light FM. Good morning, it's Light Breakfast with Asha and Terry. We're going to be jumping back into our campaign this week, Malaysian Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Mysterious Places is what we're focusing on. And if you look up Mysterious Places in Malaysia, there is one building that just keeps popping up in everywhere. Lah. It's a yeah. huge <laughs> abandoned colonial mansion in the middle of an oil palm plantation in Nibong Tebal, Penang. It's called the 99 Door Mansion. And many people consider it the most haunted building in Malaysia. It was first called the Caledonia House that's what it really was named mm-hmm. built in the 1840s by the Ramsden family they're this wealthy British family who came to Malaya back then to manage a sugar plantation which then was converted into a rubber plantation in 1948 John St. Moore Ramsden who was managing the family business was murdered in the house and the case was never solved Whoa. today the house still stands but has been left to rot we wanted to find out more about this mysterious mansion the family behind it and the shadowy circus circumstances around John's murder. First of all, let's take a step back to find out more about the Ramsden family who owned it. Way before they ever came to Malaya, they were a wealthy family who owned the town of Huddersfield, England. That's massive. Yeah. I mean, like, if you don't know what it is, like, go and have a look on the map because it's huge. Right. So today we're speaking with Professor Edward Royal, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of York. Professor, tell us more about the origins of the Ramsden family and, and how they expanded their wealth. The Ramsdens were um, a, a typical family from England uh, in that they were what you might call minor gentry back in the 16th century. Uh, they made uh, they were a Yorkshire family. Uh, they made money in the wool industry and then were able to use that money in the 16th century when the crown was selling land it had acquired at the Reformation landed to take him from the church and lots of of gentry families were doing this and gradually the Ramsons established themselves in the 17th and 18th centuries but as as minor landowners Uh, and nothing particular to distinguish them they made one or two advantageous marriages which moved them up the social scale But the transformation really began in the 18th century with industrialization, because landlords often benefited then from rising land values and investments in commercial uh, undertakings, such as Ramsons invested in a canal. Um, They became largely interested in Huddersfield way back in the 16th century through a well-placed marriage and uh, to a place called Longley. But by the later 17th century, they uh, had, although they kept that property, they, they moved away and, and had a better mansion further to the east, but still in Yorkshire. But Huddersfield in the 18th century became an increasingly prosperous place, and their fortunes rose with it. But nevertheless, it's not really until the 19th century Uh, that the family really hit the big time uh, with the coming of the railways, which pushed up land values tremendously, the development of Huddersfield, because they own the ground of the central part of Huddersfield, where the land was most valuable. And that was the foundation of their fortunes, really, uh, for uh, most of the 19th century, indeed, until the Malayan investments took over uh, from Huddersfield so that 
by 1920, uh, they sold Huddersfield uh, and uh, had interest mainly elsewhere. Um, big estate in Scotland, which they acquired, and also the estate in Malaya and in Kenya. And now we're speaking to Mariel Buxton. She's related to the Ramsden family by marriage and has authored a book on their family history. Mariel, what, what do we know about John St. Moore Ramsden himself? John originally was working for um, his, his father also by now had got very involved in Kenya, as it then was called. And they spent, he spent a lot of time out in Kenya originally with his father. He is a very intelligent, sensitive, uh, uh, interesting man. He was um, very good at languages and he had a... Um, his father didn't... I don't... I'm sure didn't mean to be unkind to him, but in fact gave him a far less good start than his own father had given him. He wouldn't... He was reluctant to hand things over or delegate. His father kept wanting to delegate more to him and he was, wasn't prepared to take it on because he was too idle um, but the next generation it was the other way around he didn't really want his son to get over involved and at one stage he had him working in Kenya where he was literally wondering where to get enough to eat the way things had been set up while his father was back in England wondering whether to take out the first rolls or the second rolls for to drive around that day it was um, he it was a that's why my book's called poverty is relative there were two sides to it and um, as heir to this enormous setup, it was seen as important that he should marry and have a son. Um, and eventually he did marry, not very happily. And at that stage, he was out in Kenya for a long time before the war. This is in the 30s. But when the war came, he left Kenya. He fought in the war. He fought extremely well all through the war. He was actually there when the Japanese finally surrendered at the end of the war. And um, he was on the ship where they surrendered. And then he went back to Malaya after that, having gone separate ways from his wife. He he now had a daughter, but no son. But his he, they were divorced, and he went off to... Um, Malaya really to have a fresh start at the time. Somebody later described him as a very um, a very nice man who was good to children and he drove them to school and all the children liked him and he was intelligent enough to run the business well and effectively. But um, I think that was he and he'd just taken been to he been to for a holiday in Kenya just before he was murdered to see his daughter. So that was the last time he saw her with her grandparents. They took her out there to see to have a holiday with him. And um, then he came back and a few weeks later was when he was murdered. And what can you tell us about Ramsden's descendants? Like, Do you know what their hopes are, if any, for Caledonia House? His daughter, Carola, is now dead, but she had two sons and, she, and uh, five grandchildren. But I'm not sure that they will have particular views on the subject. It's to, to them, it's must have very unfortunate associations. I know a number of younger members of the family, who, particularly who happen to have been in that part of the world, have gone to see it and have been very interested to, to see it. I've talked to one or two of them after they've got back and they've said they've very interested in seeing it. But I think probably some of them will 
will wish that it could be done up and restored properly and others would feel it'd be better pulled down. I don't know, but I think there are fairly mixed feelings on that in the family. I would definitely want to know what their, their mm-hmm. thoughts would be about this. So now we've heard about John St. Maur Ramzon, but what was life like for him when he lived at Caledonia House in the 1940s? We're going to find out next on Light FM. It's all about Malaysia mysteries this week, especially mysterious places. And today we're focusing on one in particular. Mm. We're looking into the history of Penang's infamous abandoned 99-door mansion. It was built by the Ramsden family who were managing a rubber business here. It's associated with mostly actually the murder of John St. Moore Ramsden, the family member who was actually managing the business. Right. He was murdered in 1948. The house may be abandoned uh, and just a shell today, right. but that actually wasn't the case in the 1940s, was it? Right, and we're speaking with Professor Lynn Holland Lees, now Professor of History Emerita at the University of Pennsylvania, who has extensively researched British colonial history in Malaya. Professor Lee, can you paint us a picture of like what Caledonia House, which is also now known as the 99 Door Mansion, at the time when John Ramsden was living there? Such a house was not just a, a mansion in the forest. Around the house would have been stables and outbuildings and kitchens and housing for a great many of the workers. It was surrounded by gardens. There was a golf course and an airfield and a school, an infirmary. So it was really the the center of an international business. And as an international business, it was also serving as part of that business. So some of the rooms on the ground floor would have served as temporary offices. Now, the house was also a major entertainment center because it had very elegant large rooms that opened up onto second floor verandas where there could be weekend parties. And it had it had electricity. It had as many modern conveniences as were available. They could have gramophones so that they could have music parties there on the weekends. And they had large kitchens and dining rooms where people would come for major dinners. The planters from all over the area would come with their cars up to Caledonia. And then they would settle in for several hours worth of probably the men earlier on golf. And then they would have you know dinners of, of roast beef and beer and things imported from the cold storage in Nibong Tabal. So it was a major entertainment center. If you ask who actually lived in the house, this becomes more interesting. And there were far fewer people in the house than you might imagine, given its enormous size. A lot of the people who worked there lived very near the house, but in separate buildings and outside of it. In the house was certainly uh, John St. Moore Ramsden. And with him was probably in 1948, a Malay woman named Munia, who was his mistress. At least that is alleged by people who knew her and him who worked and lived in the house after 1948. There would have been a a series of houseboys who served as cooks and cleaners and uh, worked in the house. There also would have been probably a laundress and a few other people to take care of sort of day-to-day needs in the house. But relatively few people actually lived in it. Professor, tell us a little bit more about the murder itself, and then what happened afterwards. And the local police called one of the other plantation assistant managers, and they all rushed over and discovered Ramson basically dead, lying at the bottom of the staircase uh, in a pool of blood. 
but they called more police and they began to try to investigate. And very quickly, what they did was to arrest or bring in anybody who had either been in the house or had worked there during the day, the, the, the workers who had been closest to, to Ramsden. And two or three days later, they arrested a couple of men. One of them was a man named Zain bin Ramjan, who'd been Ramsden's driver. So he had been relatively close to Ramsden and had been, would have seen him most days as he was driving him to one estate building or another. It was alleged to me by a woman I'll tell you about later. Zane was the brother of the young woman that Ramson had taken as a, as a mistress, Munia. They also arrested a young man by the name of M.B. bin Ismail, who had worked on the estate in some capacity, uh, possibly as a houseboy, but he'd been fired. And he was, had been sort of skulking around looking for a job again. And they took them both in for questioning. And relatively soon, they charged Zain bin Ramjan with the murder. But within a couple of weeks, the whole case fell apart. The official reasons given were that there wasn't enough evidence. Professor, you know, you visited the estate where Caledonia House or the 99 Door Mansion is actually located. And you've even spoken to people who remember John St. Moore Ramsden, which is incredible. What did the Ramsden family do after the murder? And then what happened to the all of the staff, you know, that were living there at the time? And they were totally devastated. First of all, they shut up the house. They then began to disinvest in all of these companies and to, to sell off the companies and to sell off the land. Uh, a large part was bought by, I think, uh, some Chinese investors in Penang. A lot of the land passed into the hands of the major Malayan rubber companies. The land that was planted in rubber by the Ramsons in the early 20th century is now functioning as oil palm plantations. So uh, while the house was closed and is no longer in use, the plantation just kept right on going uh, with just changes of ownership. Now, in terms of the house and the outbuildings, a lot of the household staff lost their jobs immediately. But two people, a woman named Mamuni Amal, and her husband, who had his name, I think, was Arugam. She had been a day servant at the house. In the later 1940s also, she'd been a rubber tapper. And her husband had been a gardener. So they, she had, in fact, worked on that property for her entire life. They moved into the house a year or two after the, the murder. They moved into one or two of the rooms on the ground floor. And they raised their family in one corner of the big house. And she and he were living there in 1999 when I first visited the place. She was there and alive and giving interviews in, in 2010. And she said she had had visions for years of John Ramsden. And he would appear to her in dreams and say, you will be safe. Just stay here, please. She said that she put out beer and some fruit for him on the anniversary of his death every year. And in the morning, half of the beer would be gone. She had really a wonderful repertoire of, of ghost stories. We've heard so much about the rich history of Caledonia House. What is it like venturing into this derelict mansion today? Well, we find out from someone who went inside the mansion just a few years ago. Here on Light FM. It's the Light Breakfast with Asha and Terry. Malaysian Mysteries is what it's all about Ooh, this week. Mysterious yes. 
places, right? It's been really fascinating learning about the history behind Penang's super infamous 99-door mansion, the scene of an unsolved murder. The mansion still stands today, totally abandoned and in a state of ruin, but it's attracted ghost hunters who have labelled it one of the most haunted buildings in Malaysia. I didn't know all of this and yeah. now it's like it's going to be my mission to actually go and visit I have to say. You definitely should because mm-hmm. it seems like li- lots of weird things are happening there. It's also attracted photographers like James Kerwin who visited it back in 2019 to photograph its ruined interior and uh, we got a chance to speak to him. You ended up in Malaysia and in a sort of very um, I don't know what the right word is uh, renowned haunted mysterious place called the 99 door mansion how did that happen so before i mean before that i mean i was kind of going through i left the uk actually to be on the like i say on the road full time sort of 2019 and i was in six months in tbilisi in georgia living in 2019 at the end of that decided to have like my break my holiday and I'd been to Thailand and Malaysia before actually many times and decided that I'd like to have like two or three months kind of like trotting around there but under a chilled circumstance with my camera more of a you know a longer trip mm-hmm. and the t- so left in the, the November got to Malaysia in uh, the very tail end after a short few days in the UAE and uh, yeah done some basic research on what there was to again to point the camera and um, various things cropped up some of the stuff was down south but actually ended up kind of realizing that there was a few nice things to look at around georgetown and penang these kind of areas and it did seem to be that historical mansions was like a theme that cropped up time and time again so there was a few that i visited but that was one of the main ones yeah in fact Member got to Georgetown, I think, three days before and was staying there. Then realised we couldn't take a bike as a tourist, like, a you know, a, a moped across from the island into the mainland. So we ended mm-hmm. up getting a train, actually, all the way to this rural station. I can't even remember the name. Something beginning with B, like Bong, Bong something. Yeah, then got a taxi the rest of the way from there, basically. Wow. So, yeah, it was a bit of research, finding it, and realised quite very quickly on the train it was in the middle of nowhere. So yeah, it always <laughs> is. They're always in the middle of nowhere. And was it, I mean, Spooky, what was your experience like? I mean, did it live up to its um, mysterious sort of, I don't know, reputation? I, mean, I suppose. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a weird place because it's where it's positioned. It's like in the middle of this huge palm tree plantation like very rural area there's not you don't really see anybody and i suppose that's the the weird thing about it we didn't see a single person from what i remember taxi driver just looking at us like what what are you doing here (laughs) why do you want you sure you want to go to this plantation and i jumped out and then went in and walked up this driveway if i remember rightly and it kind of like you don't even know if you're in the right space because it's quite deep into the into the palm trees and then it opened up in front of us and it was kind of this yellow building that opened up. And um, yeah, it was it was an unusual one. I wouldn't know if it was spooky. Or so. I mean, I've been in a lot of these places. So for me, I'm kind of used to it. Right. But it was an unusual one, I think, because of its position. Very quiet, just gentle breeze, you know, a lot of banging and clattering because of you know, it's the only building with wooden shutters around. And nice. uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's just it's uh, it's. Very weird one. Would you have been as confident if you'd had to stay the night? Uh, I've done it before in in other countries, but this one was a weird one. I think the heat, 
as well. I think it wouldn't have been the nicest of experiences, to be honest. <laughs> it wouldn't have been the best. <laughs> to be honest, if it would have been uh, that or homelessness, I think I'd have chose the mansion, yeah. So right, okay. It would, it and, would have been okay. And everything was fine with your photographs when you got them back? I mean, it wasn't like anything sort of suspicious cropped up in any of them, you know? <laughs> no, 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 nothing, nothing. It was a, no, it was a nice, uh, nice place, actually. I, I was kind of, I suppose, the most on edge about it is because you don't know who's going to be, you know, cropping up, you know, who's going to might, might appear and tell you to leave or who might appear and be, you, know, you don't know who actually really still kind of uses or owns the building. When you say still... appear, do you mean, you yeah. know, like, like living? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm kind of like, I'll give you another example, like in another places, like, say, for example, in Italy, you, you might get a landowner that just appears or a farmer might appear and has heard you or seen you and come up to you and ask what you're doing or right. ask you to leave. And when it's somewhere where you don't know the local language or you don't know the local vibe, you know, you don't know how they're going to take that. The mm-hmm. fact that you're there taking photos. So it's more on that, really. I'm okay. always a little bit cautious about that one. So much more to this. You can listen to the full interview and the podcast on the Light Breakfast podcast that's found on the Shock app. You've been listening to a Light FM podcast on Shock. That's S Y O K.